Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 17, Two Cars in Every Garage and Three Eyes on President Mary Robinson. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Go to the old fishing hole when we go to the old fishing hole. Have the momentum of a runaway freight train when we have the momentum of a runaway freight train. Oh, that was a long one. And today, I'll be talking about Season 2, Episode 4, Two Cars in Every Car Hole and Three Eyes on Every Fish, (laughs) which was first aired on November the 1st, 1990. And I'm going to be talking about... Mary Robinson, who was elected President of Ireland on November 7th, 1990, just six days after Two Cars in Every Garage and Three Eyes on Every Fish was first aired. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore Retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. I believe we are in the unfamiliar position of having some corrections. Yes, we have stuff that we need to talk about from the last episode. (laughs) So the last episode, we were talking about Norway and Scandinavian kings, Vikings, that sort of thing. And we got talking about Ivar the Boneless. And I said that there are several kings which have got really odd epithets, including Henry the Bastard. There is no such king as Henry the Bastard. William the Bastard was an alternative name used for William the Conqueror. So that's what I was thinking of there. I can see how the conquered might be uh, less than happy with him. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Staying on the subject of Ivar the Boneless, he was one of the sons of Ragnar Lodbrok, a legendary Viking leader. And there are several possible explanations for his rather odd name. Number one, it's a sex thing. I'll leave it at that. Fnar. Yeah. Number two, it's a mistranslation of hated. Number three, he had some sort of bone disease, e.g. brittle bone disease. Personally, I find this very unlikely, as Ivar was a warrior who fought in battle. And number four, and the most believable for me, is that he moved so swiftly in battle that he was said to move as if he didn't have any bones. Like, they seek him here, they seek him there, but they can't find him anywhere because he's got no bones. Yeah, I think that makes the most sense, which is a strange thing to be saying makes sense. Yes. Just to add to that... Ivar's brothers included Ubba, Vitzirk, Halfdan Ragnarsson, Bjorn Ironside, and Sigurd Snake in the Eye. Sigurd being my favourite because he was born with a mark in his eye said to resemble Ouroboros, the snake eating its own tail, which of course is a symbol for infinity. Ah, very good, very good. This research into royal epithets uh, led Tom to send me in the direction of Mental Floss, who have a list of the most bizarre royal epithets. And for me, Ivar the Boneless doesn't even make my top ten. Well, well, what does? Well, here we go, since you've uh, requested it, Tom. <laughs> it's time for my top ten strangest royal epithets. At number ten, we have Vadislav the Elbow High. In at nine, it's Manuel the Sausage Maker. At eight, down two places, it's Bermudo the Gouty. And at seven, up five, it's Constantine the Dung Named. We have a non-mover at number six, Berenger Ramon the Fratricide. 
at number five, all the way from Wales, it's Llewellyn the Luxurious. Wow, that's a bit of a tongue twister as well, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I definitely didn't need two takes for that one. <laughs> at number four, Anne, Queen of Bees. Our highest new entry at number three, Eric the Priest Hater. At number two for a second week, it's Half Dan the Bad Entertainer. <laughs> and the number one strangest royal epithet, yes, it's Cadophile the Battle Decliner. <laughs> nice. Nice. Good stuff. Good stuff. So, what we also need to sort out is people's opinions of the beautiful South. Because we enraged about 5% of our listenership with our views on the beautiful South. Um, I called them middle of the road and compared them to the Lighthouse family. And that was met with jokey threats of physical violence from Ben Baker. Yeah, I'm still not sure if he's got that sack of doorknobs, but you should watch out if he's uh, managed to collect some. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But, I mean, personally for me, the beautiful South, one of the reasons why I really, really dislike them is that I did a PhD in Manchester between 2005 and 2008. And in 2006, they bought out a song called Manchester, where they basically list suburbs of Manchester, say that it's raining, and say... If rain makes Britain great, then Manchester is greater. And it's like, no. No. Manchester is horrible. And one of the reasons Manchester is horrible is because of the rain. You don't get to sing a song about, it's raining and everyone's miserable. Ugh. Yeah. So who's that that hates us now? It's uh, the Australians, the Welsh, <laughs> the bald, beautiful South fans, and yep. now Mancunians. Well, um, yeah, <laughs> sorry, but I, yeah, like I said, I did a PhD in Manchester, grew to absolutely loathe the place, and I could easily go on a anti-Manchester rant, but I think I'll save that for later. Yeah, well, you have your reasons. And do. if you'd like to know those reasons, send us an eel to podcast at Retrospecticus. <laughs> um, right, let's see who I can annoy with the next UK number one. Oh, yes. Because... Is it still, is it still beautiful, South? Uh, it is not, would oh. you believe. Oh, good. A one-week wonder. At number one in the UK, when two cars in every garage, and I'm not going to say it all the way through every time because I'm just <laughs> going to trip myself over, um, it's hands down one of music's crowning glories, he said, once again vomiting his punk cred up the wall. It's the Righteous Brothers with Unchained Melody. Oh, my word. With music by Alex North and lyrics by Hi Zarat, this song is the theme to a film called Unchained, hence the name which I had never known until I researched this episode, so there we go. Uh, tons of people have done this, and apparently in 1955 there were four different versions of it in the UK Top 20 in the same week, including one by Liberace. <laughs> it's also one of the only two songs in UK chart history to hit number one with four different versions, by Jimmy Young, The Righteous Brothers, Robson and Jerome, and Gareth Gates. <laughs> it shares that record with Do You Know It's Christmas, and much like that song, you don't need to hear any of the other versions. The Righteous Brothers version has become the standard, and whilst it was established as such before it, it was helped greatly by its inclusion in the Potter's Wheel scene in the 1990 film Ghost, which is why it was re-released at this stage. And I know I've mentioned a lot of artists in this, as there are plenty of versions, including those by Hart, U2, The Goons and Leo Sayer, but just one more for you. I once saw Elvis Presley perform this live. Uh, on the telly at least 20 years after he did it, I should add for clarity. I may be as old as the hills now, but my life has absolutely no crossover with Elvis's. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was utterly jaw-dropping. 
He can't have been far from death, judging by his weight, and it was just him at a piano, putting every last remaining piece of his soul and bucket loads of sweat into it, and it just did me in. I mean, where can the art form go once you've seen someone who, it is not unfair to say, is dying before your very eyes, using what appears to be the last ounce of his strength to beg for love? Mm. It's basically the logical end of music. I suppose so. I suppose so. Do you think I'll get in trouble by saying that the version of Unchained Melody by the two blokes from Soldier Soldier is middle of the road? No, I think you could probably get away with that. Tell you what would be awful if you said it was by the two guys from Heartbeat. Yeah, that would be terrible. Imagine doing that. Anyway, so, Two Cars in Every Garage, as we said before, 1st of November 1990, uh, production number 7F01, intended to be the first in Series 2, until it was out-barted by Bart Gets an F. Uh, The US viewership, uh, they had a Nielsen of 15.8 for an estimated 26.1 million people, and the highest-rated Fox show of the week. The writers were Sam Simon and John I Don't Exist Schwarzwelder. Prove me wrong, guy. Yep. Uh, and anyway, we've spoken about both of them before. Mm-hmm. The chalkboard gag is I Will Not Xerox My Butt. Now, without wishing to do an old manish, when I were a lad, it were all fax trollers and auto gyros around here type speech, Xerox was a brand of photocopier. Its name taken from Xerography, the technology that powered photocopiers which employs electrostatic charges on a light-sensitive photoreceptor to first attract, then transfer toner particles onto paper. <coughs> According to Wikipedia. <laughs> Xerox seems to be synonymous to photocopiers, much like Hoover is to vacuum cleaners, so Xerox is used interchangeably for any photocopying product. Mm-hmm. Also, there's a cracking early Adam and the Ants song called Xerox, so bonus points there. Okay. Perhaps due to their ubiquity, the company is still going as an IT concern, even as photocopying itself increasingly becomes a side function of scanning and increasingly the preserve of multifunction devices as opposed to something you need a dedicated machine for. However, this chalkboard gag was apparently changed for a repeat airing in June 1992. Sources differ on the exact date, but it was changed to It's Potato, Not Potato, the second of which was spelt with an E, in honour of US Vice President Dan Quayle's then-recent spelling bee error. Oh, yes. That's brilliant. I I should add that I've never seen that version, but the internet reckons it happened, so I'll I'll defer to that for the time being. Okay. And the couch gag is not nearly as spectacular. The couch springs out and becomes a sofa bed. Yep. So what happens in the episode? Well, Bart and Lisa are fishing. Again, pre-vegetarian Lisa here, Mm -hmm. though she's mainly there for the relaxation. When investigative journalist Dave Shutton comes up and starts talking to them, stranger danger be damned. Mm. There's a brilliant exchange where Bart asks who the hell he is, and Dave says that in his day, they didn't talk to their elders that way, to which Bart responds, well, this is my day, and we do, sir. (laughs) The journalist is there to witness Bart's catch, a fish with one, two, three eyes. It's all over the papers, and the governor of the state that Springfield is in, not just another state, as the flag will remind us, One Mary Bailey orders an inspection of the nuclear power plant. It does not go well, with them discovering a crack in a cooling tower held together with gum, a plutonium rod used as a paperweight, not an inanimate carbon rod, that's too important to be used to weight paper, (laughs) a sleeping safety inspector, and dripping corrosive liquids. All of them bright, lurid neon green, which is very pleasing to the eye. Uh, Worse than that, they can't even recognise a bribe, and cite the plant on 342 separate violations, at a repair cost of approximately $56 million. 
This causes Mr. Burns to get wasted. Aside of him, we rarely see, aside from his series of weekly death-cheating treatments, and encounter a just-awoken Homer as they leave the plant. Joining Burns in his car, Homer disastrously opines that if Burns were governor, he could avoid such scrutiny. A gubernatorial run costs more than any honest man could afford, so it's not a problem for Monty, who drives off to create a new and better world, dropping Homer off on the way. This causes some strife in the Simpson household, with Marge backing Bailey, but Homer, who appears roundly apolitical at this point, realising he has to be seen to be voting for Burns, whether he agrees with him or not. Burns realises he has an image problem and hires a political advisor to teach him the required trickery, such as smiling and getting an actor portraying Charles Darwin to chalk up the fish's third eye as a product of natural selection. Burns also makes a point of mentioning that the fish has a taste that can't be beat, Mm-hmm. thus planting the seed of his eventual downfall. Mm-hmm. His campaign is a huge success, but as polling day grows closer, he's in danger of losing touch with the common man. As there's no man more common than Homer Simpson, his advisors hatch a plan to have him eat dinner at an employee's house the day before the election. Marge and Lisa are very much against the idea, but Homer begs and wheedles until the idea is accepted. At dinner, Lisa is humiliated by having to ask the following vacant pre-written question. Mr. Burns, your campaign seems to have the momentum of a runaway freight train. Why are you so popular? When she complains to Marge, we are all let in on a little surprise, as Marge serves a three-eyed fish for dinner. Mm, very good. Burns reluctantly takes a piece but spits it out. The assembled media photograph the mouthful, and he goes from dead heat to dead last before it even hits the floor. A dejected Burns goes on a rampage, but is too physically weak to destroy or disrupt anything though Smithers and Homer pitch in to help. He vows to Homer that he will spend his remaining years ensuring that Homer's dreams go unfulfilled. But Marge reminds Homer that his dreams are so incredibly basic that they can't really be destroyed. And that's it. Uh Whilst it's a nice little moment, episodes have tended to peter out a little bit when we see Marge reassuring Homer. And this one's no different in that respect. Yeah, well, it just has to reset everything. Yeah. So, Citizen Kane, then. Citizen Kane. Yes. Which I've never seen, for context. Yes. Now, there's a scene when Mr. Burns, when it's obvious that he's going to lose the election, when he starts trashing the living room of The Simpsons, and that's an obvious tribute to what Charles Foster Kane does towards the end of Citizen Kane, where everyone's left him, and he just trashes the room. And we haven't even got to Rosebud yet. No, no. No, but, but 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 I will say, if you haven't seen Citizen Kane, I would recommend seeing it, and you will understand so many Simpsons references. <laughs> I'll definitely have to pencil it in. So, um, character debuts. There's a very obvious one here. Uh, Blinky, the three-eyed fish. Mm. Uh, Blinky would become an unofficial mascot for Simpson, uh, and he or others like him reappear too many times for me to be bothered to list. <laughs> But a special shout-out to Season 16, Episode 10, There's Something About Marrying, where one of them has mutated into a bipedal fish monster. And it would also inspire other mutant animal characters, such as the many-eyed squirrel in the Simpsons movie, mm-hmm. and several multi-eyed fish spotted in the waters of New New York in Space Pilot 3000, the first episode of Futurama. Yeah, OK. Uh, Governor Bailey will be back a couple of times as well. Uh, she essentially receives no character due to the brevity of her appearances. But we'll see her again in Season 14, Episode 3, Bart vs. Lisa vs. the Third Grade, 
as discussed in our flag special, which we can't really get away from at the moment. No, no. Does just it, seem it, to keep it, coming it's back. Because, it's because flags are so ubiquitous for everywhere. Absolutely. Keep an eye on that, Liverpool. That's all I'll say. Mm. Um, and season 16, episode 14, The Seven Beer Snitch. So they remembered she existed for two years, 12 years after her original appearance. Okay. That's, that's continuity. A few digi-knows. Oh, yes. Governor Mary Bailey has the same name, except for the governor bit, offs, as George Bailey's wife, as played by Donna Reed in the classic 1946 movie It's a Wonderful Life, which is sadly not nearly as good as the Sparkle Horse song It's a Wonderful Life, taken from the album It's a Wonderful Life. This episode won the Environmental Media Award for Best TV Comedy at that organisation's first annual award ceremony in 1991, due to its pro-green bent. Other winners included Tiny Toon Adventures and Dances with Wolves, but, most notably, the victor in the EMA Board of Directors Ongoing Commitment Award was none other than Richard Dean Anderson, TV's (laughs) original MacGyver. (laughs) Nice. Um, And a did you notice for you, Tom, uh, a number of derogatory terms for the voting populace are used in this episode. I'll give you the first one. Joe Sixpack. Yep, okay. Did you notice the others? Oh, Mr. Burns says them quite quickly. I can't remember what they are. You're going to have to tell me. Okay, well, we've got uh, Joe Meatball. Joe Meatball, yep, okay. Johnny Lunchpail. Sally Housecoat. (laughs) And perhaps my favourite, Eddie Punchclock. Eddie Punchclock, that's a great one. (laughs) Were they all made up for the episode? Ah, I... I did a little bit of research on this, and like I can't tell whether they were existing terms or whether they've been made up for for the show itself. I'd imagine they're probably from a number of similar terms. Yeah, because The Simpsons has been around for so long that whenever you hear them use a phrase like that, you don't know if that's a phrase that existed like in the eighties and that they've incorporated into the show, or it's something that they've just invented. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. The Simpsons is, is making its own lexicon. Yeah, definitely, um, definitely. Especially at this stage. But, lexicons aside, how many eyes does President Mary Robinson have? <laughs> well, just before we get into President Mary Robinson, I've just got one point I'd like to make. One of the things about this episode is that it completely destroys the facade of John Schwarzwelder. Because they create this character for John Schwarzwelder in that he's this anti-environmentalist gun nut. And this episode has a very obvious pro-environment message. So this idea that some right-wing gun nut could have written this? No, don't buy it. It's just more evidence that it doesn't exist for me. Boy, I hope someone got fired for that. (laughs) So, without further ado, how many eyes does President Mary Robinson have? (laughs) Well, she's just got two. That's a bit of a letdown to me. Yes, okay, so... While Americans were digesting the magnificence of two cars in every car hole and three eyes on every fish, I wrote the same joke that you did. (laughs) And it's definitely car hole, H-O-L-E. I know that because Hank Azaria himself has confirmed it on Twitter. And car hole is just so much funnier than car hold, which some people think it is. Car Car hold is almost posh in itself. Absolutely. Holes are intrinsically funny. Yeah, a hole, a thing in the ground. A hole. I am a mole and I live in a hole. <laughs> Sorry, I've just gone on a, off on a little hole tangent there. <laughs> and indeed a mole tangent. Yeah. So anyway, back to, back to the serious stuff. 
whilst this episode was broadcast, in Ireland, they were entering the final days of campaigning in the 1990 presidential election, which was won by Mary Robinson. So before I get into the story, I've got a couple of conflicts of interest to declare. It needs to be done. Firstly, I know that when telling a story from history, you're supposed to be as politically neutral as possible. While I'm going to try and do that, it's impossible to talk about Ireland without talking about the political entity known as Northern Ireland. I should say that I personally believe in a united Ireland under the Republic. Second thing I want to say is that as a British person, I feel a bit uneasy telling any story relating to Ireland, as Ireland was under the yoke of British rule for around 800 years. And while the Brits were in charge, they did some terrible things, as we are about to find out. Can I just be very clear on this? Are you about to alienate another huge section of society that will no longer listen to our show? <laughs> if there are any angry Northern Irish Protestants, any, any members of the Democratic Unionist Party listening to this, I'd switch off now. Right. <laughs> so, some basic island facts. Ooh. And... I know, I know this seems a bit weird doing it for somewhere as well-known as Ireland, but I do it for every country I talk about, so I'm going to do it for Ireland as well. And I've met people who think that England and Ireland are one country. So anyway, here we go. The island of Ireland, era in Irish, is located to the west of England, Scotland and Wales. It's divided into four provinces. So that's Connaught, Munster, Leinster and Ulster, and 32 counties. As of February 2019, 26 of these counties make up the Republic of Ireland, whose capital, Dublin, is on the east coast. Six of the nine counties of Ulster make up the region, territory, whatever you want to call it, of Northern Ireland. It's a classic mistake people make. They, they use Ulster and Northern Ireland interchangeably, mm. when two-thirds of Ulster is Northern Ireland. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. And that's currently part of the United Kingdom. I say currently because it's February 2019 and who knows what's going to happen in the near future. So its capital is Belfast. Now some people are surprised to learn how northerly Ireland is, with Belfast being at roughly the same latitude as Newcastle-upon-Tyne and Dublin being approximately level with Liverpool and Manchester. Population-wise, uh, Gareth, I want to see if you know this. Given that the population of the UK is roughly 66 million... What do you think the population of Northern Ireland is? I'm really, really bad at guessing amounts of things. Um, but I'm going to say 10 million? 10 million. I'm afraid, you're <laughs> I'm afraid your reputation for being not good at guessing is upheld, because it's 1.8 million. My God. Mm -hmm. But judging by the size, mind you... I suppose there's there's quite a lot of rural areas in Ireland, isn't mm -hmm. there? With mm -hmm. a, a lot of space between dwellings. Mm -hmm. So what do you think the population of the Republic is? Oh, right, okay. And that's as, as a part of the 1.8 million... No, 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 no. It's separate country, so... Oh, so I was just guessing for Northern Ireland before? Yeah. Oh, right. I missed that. Otherwise I would have guessed something lower. <laughs> uh, no, we'll, we'll leave that in. We'll leave that in. Okay. Um, well, it was a terrible guess for the previous country, but I'm going to stick with 10 million. 10 million? It's 4.8. Okay, so I was closer this time. Uh, uh, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> and I saved energy by not thinking of two numbers. Indeed, indeed. So, very brief history of Ireland. It's going to have to be very brief, given the time constraints that we arbitrarily give ourselves for some reason. Up until around 400 AD, Ireland was populated by Celtic pagan people. 
Around this time, Christianity began to spread. Of course, traditionally, St. Patrick was the first person to bring Christianity to Ireland, but that claim is contested by historical records. According to tradition, St. Patrick came to Ireland in 432, but we know from the Vatican that the Bishop Palladius was sent by Pope Celestine I to be the first bishop to the Irish believing in Christ. So Christianity must have been established before St. Patrick turned up. Yeah. And of course we all know the big St. Patrick claim to fame, he got rid of all the snakes. Now I quite like it as a little story, because there's more to it than meets the eye. Uh, if you take it at face value, it's obviously nonsense, and there were never any snakes in Ireland in the first place. But as a myth, it's quite cute, because he was supposed to have rounded them up, put them in a big chest, and then thrown that chest into the sea. And that's why the Irish Sea is so rough. Because oh. there's all snakes wriggling around at the bottom of it. That's, yeah, that's kind of nice. Not for the snakes, mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. um, yeah. And there's a lot of, uh, obviously, a lot of Simpsons references we could shoehorn in here. Whacking Day. Yes. Um... Uh, the rock that keeps tigers away. Um, but <laughs> yep. yes, we'll, we'll save those for the uh, appropriate episodes. Mm -hmm. But there's also a nefarious side to the story, as the snakes can also be taken as a metaphor, i.e. for pagan druids. So you drove all the, you know, all the snakes you know, as a generic bad thing. You drove them out of Ireland. Christianity blended with Celtic tradition and resulted in many of the designs and motifs we associate with Ireland today. These include stone Celtic crosses and the highly ornate Book of Kells, a version of the Gospel made in around 800 AD. Around this time, our good friends the Vikings turned up. Their dealings in Ireland were similar to that in England, but at a smaller scale. They first turned up at the start of the 9th century with rape and pillage on their minds, but after a while they settled, founding Dublin in 852. The relationship between the Vikings and the Irish kingdoms was a fractious one. On one hand, they used their settlements as bases for raiding. On the other hand, they traded with the kingdoms and introduced coinage. The influence of the Vikings lessened following the Battle of Clontarf in 1014, which saw the Irish king Brian Boru battle against the Norse king of Denmark, Sigtried Silkbeard. So another pretty cool Viking name. Ah. Up until 1168, Ireland was divided between various kingdoms. In this year, Dermot, the King of Leinster, was forcibly exiled by the King of Connaught, and they have very long Celtic names that I'm not even going to try and pronounce. He went to Aquitaine, modern-day southwest France, and persuaded the northern king, Henry II, to allow him to build up a force of knights that he'd take back to Ireland to regain his kingdom. They landed in Ireland, and Dermot was restored as the ruler of Leinster, However, after getting approval from the Pope, King Henry II himself landed in Ireland in 1171, becoming the first King of England to set foot in Ireland. And he took control of it, making his son John the Lord of Ireland. When John became King, Ireland became part of his kingdom, marking the start of Ireland becoming directly under the control of the King of England. Throughout the next couple of centuries, various events took place that affected the balance of power in Ireland, but none more so than the Black Death of 1348. The English and Normans mostly lived in towns and cities, while the Irish lived in the countryside. As any epidemiologist will tell you, diseases like the plague spread much faster in urban areas. English control fell back to a fortified area of Dublin known as the Pale. Going outside it was considered dangerous, hence the phrase, Beyond the Pale. Yeah. Yeah, nice, okay. Good one, that. 
Power in Ireland laid almost exclusively with the Fitzgerald dynasty of Kildare, with the leader Silken Thomas Fitzgerald, another interesting name. Um, he went into open rebellion in 1536. Henry VIII decided to reassert English control and put down the rebellion. Henry made Ireland a full kingdom rather than just a lordship and proceeded to do battle against the Irish chieftains until England had full control. This took centuries and went beyond the reign of Henry VIII. Over the course of the 16th century, Catholic landowners had their land taken away and given to Protestant settlers, and penal laws were used to encourage the Catholic population to convert. Following the rebellion of 1641, Ireland was ruled briefly by the Catholic gentry as Confederate Ireland, until armies led by Oliver Cromwell arrived to reconquer it. Cromwell was particularly brutal, with Ireland losing around half its population, either through war, disease, or slavery. On the 6th of February, 1685, James II became King of England. He had converted to Catholicism while exiled in France, and his daughter Mary was married to the Dutch Protestant Prince William III of Orange. The hopes of the Protestants in Parliament was that Mary would succeed James, ensuring a royal Protestant line. However, in 1688, his wife Mary of Medina gave birth to a son, also called James. This meant that the line of succession would be Catholic. Parliament concocted what became known as the Glorious Revolution, covered by Lucy Worsley in her History's Greatest Fibs series, where they invited William of Orange to invade England. He did just that, and instead of meeting the army in battle, James is reported to have thrown the royal seal into the River Thames and fled to France. James's daughter Mary was made queen and ruled with her husband William of Orange, hence William and Mary. Hmm. While in France, James made plans to reclaim his lost kingdoms and planned to invade not England, but Ireland. In March 1689, his armies landed and the Irish Parliament recognised him as the legitimate King of Ireland. Whilst in charge, James introduced a law that granted religious freedom to all Catholics and Protestants. However, this didn't last. William gathered an army and led it to drive out his father-in-law. William was victorious at the Battle of the Boyne, and James once again went into exile. To this day, the Orange Order commemorate this battle with their marches. Which there seem to be about 5,000 of if you live in Liverpool city centre. Yes, there are. There are. Yeah. Don't get me started on that. That's... Yeah. <laughs> okay. Throughout the following century, the established way of things was this. Protestants were landowners who pledged allegiance to the King of England, while Catholics were largely peasants. Ireland was a separate kingdom to England and ruled on behalf of the English monarchy by a viceroy or Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. Catholics were not the only people in Ireland to be suppressed. Presbyterians, Baptists and other religions considered to be dissenters were too. Working with Catholics and inspired by revolutions in France and America, the United Irishmen instigated the Irish Rebellion of 1798. They aimed to take over and make Ireland into a republic, but the rebellion was put down by the British. In the aftermath, the British Parliament passed the Act of Union, incorporating Ireland into the United Kingdom. This took effect in 1801 and resulted in a unified Parliament, in effect closing the Irish Parliament and adding the Cross of St Patrick into the Union Jack. Once again, flag special. 
Between 1845 and 1849, Ireland experienced a great famine, which started when potato blight entered the country. Due to working practices instigated by the British, millions of peasant farmers were dependent on the potato crop for survival. When it failed, about a million people died and a million more emigrated. Now, I'm not going to get much into the politics of it, but it's difficult to conclude anything other than the actions of the British contributed to the famine. When Ireland experienced a famine in 1782, the government responded by closing the ports. This stopped food from being exported, therefore lowering the demand and causing the price of food in Ireland to drop. In 1845, the ports remained open and food was exported, meaning that the starving population couldn't afford what food was available. It's basically, the British didn't give a monkeys about the Irish population, certainly not the Catholic population anyway. So after the famine, various land acts were passed to try and improve living standards, but the subject of home rule entered the political arena. The Irish Parliamentary Party pushed for it, and despite William Gladstone failing to get it passed twice in the final decades of the century, home rule was eventually passed just as the First World War was breaking out, so it was immediately suspended. By this time, a clear north-south divide had become apparent. The north of the country had a large Protestant population and had become largely industrialised, while the south was mostly Catholic and rural. The Protestants in the north feared home rule, as they didn't like the idea of being outnumbered and potentially outvoted by Catholics. After the third home rule bill was introduced in 1912, the Ulster Volunteers, the predecessor to the Ulster Volunteer Force, was founded. In response to this, the Irish Volunteers were founded. The next big event in Irish history came in 1916, right in the middle of the First World War. On Easter Monday, armed Irish Republicans took control of strategic locations in Dublin and proclaimed a republic in what is now known as the Easter Rising. The British sent thousands of troops and artillery to crush the Rising, and the Republican leaders surrendered after six days. The British introduced martial law, arrested over 3,000 people, and executed many of the leaders, with the notable exception of Eamon de Valera, who was spared because he was born in the USA. And the British figured that trying to execute an American, when they were trying to get America to join World War I, wouldn't be a good idea. The issue of home rule continued throughout the First World War and into the 20s. A delegation led by Michael Collins went to London, and in December 1921, the Anglo-Irish Treaty was agreed. The treaty abolished any Irish Republic, but instead allowed the creation of the Irish Free State. This new state would have dominion status within the British Empire, giving it a similar status to Canada. The six counties of Northern Ireland have the option to opt out of the Free State and remain part of the UK. When the treaty was enacted in 1922, Northern Ireland took this option. In the Free State, Republicans were split. One side saw the treaty as being imposed by the British as a way of keeping Ireland aligned with Britain and keeping down Republican wishes. The other saw it as a step to a republic. These differences perpetuated the Irish Civil War, which the government of the Free State would eventually win. After the war, Eamon de Valera, who was on the anti-treaty side, founded the party Fianna Foyle. A few years later, the party Fianna Gael was founded, when parties who were broadly pro-treaty merged, and these two parties are the dominant forces in Irish politics to this day. Fianna Foyle won the general election of 1932, therefore peacefully taking power in the South. In 1937, they adopted a new constitution which renamed the country to just Ireland. The constitution established the role of president, 
Inspired by Weimar Germany, the term of the presidency was set for seven years. Douglas Hyde became the first president in 1938. Then the Second World War came around. Ireland officially adopted a policy of neutrality, but thousands volunteered to fight for the British. The time in Ireland is known as the emergency. Rationing was introduced, and the tea ration in Ireland was less than that of the UK. Oh, unthinkable. Yep, absolutely. In 1949, and with the UK recovering from the Second World War, Ireland declared itself a republic. This time, there was little British opposition, and any legislative powers held by the King of England were transferred to the President of Ireland, making the role of President the head of state of the Irish Republic. Ireland attempted to join the UN, but was only able to do so in 1955 after the USSR dropped its veto. It attempted to join the EEC in the 1960s, but was blocked by France. It eventually joined when the UK did in 1973. The Irish economy was pretty stagnant during the 70s, but it picked up in the 80s following reforms and investment from the EEC. This pickup became known as the Celtic Tiger. Ah, yes, I've heard that before. Towards the end of the 80s, the time came for Ireland to elect a new president. All of the previous presidents had been associated with Fianna Foyle or Fianna Gael, but Mary Robinson emerged as a candidate with a totally different background. Coming from a legal background, Mary Robinson became a senator sitting in the Senate, Ireland's upper house, as an independent in 1969. While there, she campaigned on liberal issues against Ireland's staunchly Catholic laws. At the time, contraception was illegal, women were not allowed to sit on juries, and if a woman was working for the civil service and got married, she had to leave her post. So, you know, massively sexist, essentially. Mary Robinson joined the Labour Party in the mid-70s and unsuccessfully ran for election in the Dale, that's the lower house. In 1982, she resigned from the Labour Party in protest at the Anglo-Irish Agreement that the government had signed with Margaret Thatcher. So I'm afraid we brought Thatcher in again. Not long now for that, though. Mm -hmm. No, no, absolutely, stay tuned. After she did not seek re-election to the Senate in 1989, the Labour Party approached her to be their candidate for the presidency, which she accepted. In the election, Mary Robinson was up against Brian Lenehan of Fianna Foyle and Austin Curry from Fianna Gael. Brian Lenehan got the most first preference votes, with 44% of the electorate behind him. However, as he didn't pass the threshold of 50%, second preference votes were taken into consideration. When that happened, Robinson got most of the Fianna Gael votes and won the election with 51.9% becoming the first woman to be president of Ireland. Isn't alternative vote terrible? (laughs) And so difficult to understand. Yeah. So before Mary Robinson, the Irish presidency had a bit of a bad reputation, being reserved for elderly politicians in their twilight years. Also, Ireland has a non-executive president, so it's not like the president of the USA or France. It's sort of largely a ceremonial thing, a bit like the president of Germany. But Robinson chose who she met very carefully. She requested an audience with Pope John Paul II. She became the only European head of state to meet the Dalai Lama on his tour of the continent. Very controversial, because obviously meeting the Dalai Lama upsets China. And she met one of Belfast's more controversial MPs, a certain Gerry Adams. She also used a visit to Somalia to highlight the plight of the people there. During her presidency, her approval rating 
reached an impressive high of 93%. And I just imagine that scene where Marge is in the White House and someone says, Madam President, your approval rating is soaring. When I hear that statistic. I, I don't think I've, I've known the like. Outside of a dictatorship, anyway. Where, you know, 100% <laughs> approval. Yeah, yeah. So during her presidency, Ireland became more liberalised. She signed bills that made contraceptives more readily available and that fully decriminalised homosexuality. And divorce also became legal during her presidency. Two months before her term was due to end, she became the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. I mean, that shows the nature of the presidency in Ireland. Could, could, could you imagine if, a pre, if an American president just went, can I just do something else for the last two months? <laughs> can I just play a lot of golf? Oh, no, that happens, doesn't it? So, that's it for now. You'll notice that I've said nothing about the troubles in Northern Ireland or the 1998 Good Friday agreement. They will just have to wait for another day. Excellent. Uh, And just to be clear about this, she doesn't have three eyes? No, Mary Robinson does not have three eyes, no. Damn. (laughs) Oh, well... Uh, if you think Mary Robinson has three eyes and you'd like to correct us, <laughs> indeed, any amount of eyes other than two, four, five, six usually follows, <laughs> then um, you can send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org or tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. I believe that's all we have this time. Yes, yes. Hopefully we haven't offended any beautiful South fans this week. Nope, although we may have offended uh, most of Ireland. Well, maybe. <laughs> anyway... Uh, If you're still with us, we'll see you next time. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.